Uh, let's pray before we uh, jump into this. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be with us as we go through your scriptures. Pray that you would open our mind and our hearts to what you have for us. So important for us to understand your word and how it instructs us to live in Jesus' name. Amen. Really curious how God works. This past week, I just had so many people, so many questions and talking to me about perspective and how to look at life. So I think this scripture is quite fitting to how that is and keeping in mind perspective of eternity as opposed to what's just temporary. So this passage this morning is going to help cover that. Now last week we looked at the shrewd manager whose employment was going to be terminated because he was wasting his boss's possessions. And as he sees the end of his employment coming to an end, he comes up with this plan to get in good with his master's debtors. And the plan was to come up with this sweet deal for the master's debtors so that the debtors made out better and so did he. So they both come away with something. And the greatest thing to come out of this wasn't the money part, but the relationships that he was going to solidify moving forward. He he would have them as friends. So looking back at chapter 16, verse 4, it reads, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so just to give us a little background before we venture into verses 10 through 13, Jesus goes on to point out in verse 8, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So people of the world execute worldly plans for worldly things and they do it really well. They're good at coming up with these strategies to achieve the temporary, more so than people of the light who are dealing with things of everlasting, eternity. Now with this in mind, Jesus told them, verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So in other words, use your stuff. Use your stuff, use your worldly stuff, which God has given to you, and bless others and influence them in terms of where they're going to be in, in everlasting life. So use your stuff to move people from darkness into light. Don't waste your resources on what's temporary, but invest into what's everlasting. It's not about how much we can hoard in this world. It's about the relationships we build so that we influence people to move from darkness into light. To foster similar strategies, similar tactics, similar approaches in shrewdness as the manager did in this story. So to invest our resources with eternity in mind and not to be temporary-minded with our resources. Now, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's really not all that hard to figure out where your heart is. Because where do you spend most of your time when you jump on the internet? Where do you go first? If someone was to look into your browsing history, what are they going to find? Right? So sports, porn, business, that's where your heart's at. Right? What's in your history? And I understand that our jobs take us to certain websites or or different sections of the newspapers or, or types of newspapers that we look at. 
And so when I was in the marketplace, uh, I, I recall reading, you know, the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and looking through Bloomberg and Reuters every morning before I started my day when I used to work in the marketplace. What was sad about that is I did that for so many years because I was chasing the dollar before I picked up my Bible. I did that for years reading all these financial magazines and newspapers and publishings before I even picked up my Bible. Where my treasure is, there my heart will be also. And so if you knew me about 15 years ago, that's where my heart was. I was not opening the Scriptures first. I was not seeking the Lord first. My heart was for money. And we can find out a lot about each other's hearts simply by looking at where we place our treasures. So what sites do you look at most? Where do you go? What do you spend your money on? Time, resources, talent, money, all that stuff. Where is it going and when is it going? And what do you mean, when is it going? I mean, is it for the present past or the present future? Where is your mindset Right, the, the past, present, future, or is it a mix of things? These are questions to help us figure out our view on eternity. Now, some people are stuck in the past and they, and they can't get out of it, right? So Berkeley has a lot of hippies still, right? I don't, I don't get it. Like, That's like 40 years ago, 50 years ago. There's still a lot of them there. Some of them are like newer hippies. New, I don't know what to call those. Postmodern hippies? I don't know. And there are people who want to leave their assets to their children and their grandchildren, which in a way is a forward-thinking thing. But is that really in light of eternity? Or is that still kind of in this kind of time capsule of what is really temporary? Because it's still kind of temporary, isn't it? We, we need to live in the present in light of eternity. So as a follower of Jesus, this is a true statement, isn't it? That we need to live our lives right now in the present in light of eternity. That we have an eternal perspective. But why is this so difficult to do? See, the world is good at preparing for temporary futures because they know that all their eggs are in that basket. Right? So, so we have billions and billions of dollars in pension funds and 401ks and IRAs and 403bs and all those types of retirement products. Billions and billions of dollars invested for the temporary future for our retirement and hopefully to outlast our retirement so that we can leave something behind for our heirs. So what's up with Christians who are good at investing into their temporary futures, but they're not so good with investing into their life everlasting, their forever futures? Right, so the temporary is fleeting. Our, our life on earth is fleeting. The money that we leave behind will be fleeting. Yet some invest so much more in the temporary than they do in the eternal. Now we're going to jump to verse 13 first, and then we'll backtrack at the end of it. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what does your bank statement reveal in regards to whom you serve? Where is your money going? And I don't mean to guilt you into changing the way that you use your resources or to guilt you into giving to this church. Please don't receive this message this way because if you do, you may change where you allocate your resources in regards to your behavior. And that is still temporary. You are still living in the temporary. That is not your heart. 
And I think we can all admit that we've fallen short somewhere in our life in light of the biblical standards that are in front of us in the Bible. And if we've been a Christian for a significant period of time, we've probably all been guilted into changing our behavior. Right? Youth groups are really good at this. So we make some behavior modifications and, and it satisfies our guilt, right? So I'm not lying as much or I'm not stealing as much or I'm not sleeping with my girlfriend or boyfriend as much or I'm not taking drugs as much and I'm not drinking as much and I'm not doing all these things. But once the guilt is satisfied, once whatever behavior modification you do and once your guilt, that, that message that you heard or that whatever that you heard, once that is satisfied, what happens? What happens? What happens when it's just a satisfaction of guilt, but there is no heart change? You end up right back to where you were before you felt guilty. You go right back to there. And, you, and so some of us keep on wondering, why do I keep on struggling with the same things? There's no heart change. It's just a behavior modification. And so it's just this cycle. It's a cycle of, I feel guilty, so I'll change my behavior. But then there's no heart change. So I'm susceptible to the same guilt, and I feel guilty again. So I change my behavior, but then there's still no heart change. And so I'm susceptible to guilt, and I'm guilty again. And then it's this cycle, and it's this cycle, and this cycle, and you just keep going through it. How do we move from temporary guilt to everlasting glory? How do we do that? See, Guilt is very good at behavior modification. It is. Your parents have probably done it to you. Mine did it to me. I'm sure yours have done it to you. And and churches are good at prescribing this too. Churches are very good at this. But what happens when it wears off? We re-enter that cycle of guilt. How do we get out of that and enter into the splendor of the King? How do we move from living out of guilt into living a glorious life because we are children of the Lord. Well, we need to faithfully let something happen in our life. We need to accept that there is a possibility of something glorious happening really soon, persuading us to do something that redirects our everlasting passions. What we become passionate about decides the use of our resources, right? The best pro athletes, the ones who are passionate about what they do, they will sacrifice their bodies to work out and to get in a better condition. They will sacrifice their diets. They will sacrifice whatever it takes to be the best pro athlete. The most brilliant minds, they will sacrifice time to study and to learn and to figure out what they are curious about. You don't have to guilt them into doing those things that they're passionate about. You don't have to go to a pro athlete and guilt them into being really good at what they do or someone that's really smart and just reads because they're interested in learning about things. You don't have to guilt them into learning that. You probably have to tell them to put the book down. You probably have to tell them to stop working out. Unless they're a tiger mom. How many of you had a tiger mom? I'm really curious. How many of you? That's it, really? No way. None of you had tiger mom? (laughs) Tiger mom. This is tiger mom. With a tear in her eye. Why did you get an A minus? How did you miss two questions? I took a third job so I can afford to send you to tutoring and this is how you repay me? 
I almost died when I gave birth to you. And, and you get an A minus. And I, I walked seven miles through snow, even though I was born in the spring, to get to the hospital. It was so cold, I had to put newspapers in my coat to insulate me and all this stuff. See, Tiger Mom does not care that you studied hours upon hours. She doesn't care anyway. Tiger Mom doesn't even care if you're passionate about studying, which I was not. She just wants results. That's it. She just wants results. Sorry about the relapse. I'm still recovering from my Tiger Mom. So aside from Tiger Moms, people don't have to guilt each other into doing what they're passionate about. You don't have to. They're passionate about it. When a disciple of Jesus has eternity in view, it changes everything. It changes everything. It changes how one lives in the present. You, you take a, a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then... I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In the present, in the now, we don't have the clarity we will have then, right? Life everlasting. We don't have that clarity. But if we have the eternal perspective, it changes how we live now. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6-18. through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary Affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Eternal perspective in the now is so important as a disciple of Jesus. It will affect your decision making. It will affect the choices that you make. To not live in the temporary, but to live with eternity in mind. How many of us are guilty of not believing this? We make decisions without eternity in mind. Right? Compromising the everlasting with temporary things. The relationships that we're in. Right, the money choices that we make, the lifestyle choices that we make, the business choices, all the different things we're confronted with in this life. But we make temporary choices without eternal perspective. So is everlasting life real to you? Or is that just a theory that you hope is real? Because if that is real to you, why are your present temporary choices inconsistent to a life with eternity in mind? My intent is not to heap guilt on you so you change your perspective. You can't just do that. My intent is not so that you just change your present decisions to satisfy your guilt until that guilt has subsided and then you just go on living your life again. My hope is that God gives us glimpses of an eternal glory so that we can be passionate and redirect our choices to, to the everlasting and not the temporary. To think through what this means. And some of you may be like that father in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, who said, I believe, help my unbelief. And how many times am, am I there? You know, I believe a certain thing, but there's, this also, there's also this thing of unbelief in me too. Like, God, are you really going to come through on this? 
I mean, I believe in you, and, and I've seen the history of you providing for me and you doing all this stuff for me, but I still have this unbelief. You know you believe, but you need help with your unbelief. You believe, but there are still doubts as to how God is going to come through for you in these present circumstances. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, Peter wrote, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How does that happen? You have to look back to verses 3 and 4 of 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It's through God's power. It's through God's power, His precious and very great promises, and escape from the corruption in the world because of sinful desire that we are richly provided into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1. There's no richly provided entrance into the eternal kingdom of Jesus without God's power, without His precious and very great promises. It's not possible. With God's power and His precious and very great promises, it changes the way we live in this world and we can escape from the corruption that is in the world. We live differently in the present. We live very differently right now because we have eternity in mind. It's not because of guilt. We are in this world right now and we are living in this kind of not-yet aspect of everlasting, right? Knowing that we are sojourners in this world, but we are citizens of heaven. And there is more to life than this world. I remember my aunts telling me when I was in high school that my life doesn't get better than this. Any of you had aunts like this or people like this in your life? I so looked up to my aunts. My aunts were so cool. They took me to drive-in movies. There's some of you that don't even know what drive-in movies are. They're like, what's a drive-in movie? I have like 50 first cousins. My grandfather had this big American car. I don't remember what it was, like a cut, Oldsmobile Cutlass or some, some, something with a humongous trunk. So she popped it in. And we're like, come on, kids. And all of us jumped into that trunk and they shut it. And we're all like, oh, 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 don't get your foot on my face. And, all this. and my aunts would jump, go into the cabin, and, and we'd go. And they'd pay the whatever it was. It was like $1.50 or something per person for the thing. And we'd get in, and they'd open the trunk, and all of us, ah, all come up. And, and we'd just like sit on top of the car or sit on the floor and then like crank up the radio so that everyone could hear. And it'd be like all of us there. That's just how my family rolls. And so... I was like 10. They took me to see Gremlins. I was so excited. And I thought that if they just poured water in us when we were in the trunk, we'd multiply because there's so many of us. But I was 10, and I still knew that that was wrong. I knew that they were trying to get away with something like that. So people that say, like, oh, kids are born innocent, kids are sinners. Kids are sinners. Because I knew. I knew what we were doing wrong. Anyway, I've, I've repented of that already. 
But when each of my kids were born, the first thing I whispered in their ear, when I held them, when they first came out of the womb and I held them, I, I whispered in their ear, Jesus is Lord. The second thing I lovingly whispered in their ear was, you're a sinner and you need him. But the first thing that they heard in their ear was the gospel. Jesus is Lord. Now back to my aunts. I'm really close to them even to this day. I talk to them all the time and we have a great time together. I love them and I so believe them that high school was, the, was going to be the best years of my life. And I was so excited. I was living in the best years of my life. I was in it. I was in it. And then afterwards, I thought after all those encouraging moments of like, yeah, you're going to go to prom and you're going to go on dates and you're going to get your driver's license and all this stuff, right? And then after I left, I was like thinking, wait a minute, that's terrible. Because I'm going to live like 60 more years. Are you kidding? So for the rest of my life, it's not as good as this. I'm so glad that they're wrong. I'm so glad that they're wrong. I had awesome times in high school. I had great days in high school. But my best day came plenty throughout my entire life. I had a lot of great days in high school too. And I was thinking of when the best day of my life was. And I was working on this sermon. I was typing away and I was thinking in my head, when was the best day of my life? And I'm typing out some notes. And then my three-year-old just comes and comes right behind me and she's like choking me because we're learning the because we're because we're learning rear naked choke right now and so she's like choking me i was like oh yeah that's a good one that's a good one and she's like and so and she's like bear hugging me and then she grabs her beanie and she sticks it over my head and she's like piling over and like pushing it down like this and we pull it off and it's just like a parachute because my head's big i got a big head and her her little beanie is small and so like this thing is just like Useless, Like, she can't use it anymore. But then she put that thing back on my head, and she was like, Daddy, you look so cool. And and it was like pastels. It was pastel stripes. And I was like, thanks. Cool. I'm cool. I'm going to wear this for Easter. And I got to thinking, that's a best moment. That, that's a best moment. And I don't have a best day. I mean, but that's that's like a best moment when my kid is trying to, choke me out and stuff a beanie down my head and stuff like that. I mean, that's awesome. But even as great as that moment was and is for people of the world, it's still temporary. And I enjoyed all 50 seconds of it, but it's still temporary. And the people of the world have a lot of best days and they have a lot of best moments, just like the rest of us, but they're temporary. And the child of the world's hope is in the world, which is why all that they attain is temporary. And they need to live in the now, accumulating stuff and experiencing stuff of this world. Not just the material things, right? The experiences that come along with it. And so they make big deals about like reunions and vacations and all these things. And the belief of the children of the world is that nothing gets better than what's in the world. So the family is of the top priority. Nothing comes before family. Nothing comes before friends. Nothing comes before all this. Life doesn't get any better than in this world. Children of the light recognize something different. Children of the light recognize God's power. His precious and very great promises. 
the escape from corruption in the world because of sinful desire and the richly provided entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, providing us entrance into his kingdom. But people want a richly provided entrance without God's power. Without God's promises or escape. People of the world want those things without God. People want a richly provided entrance without difficulties. When those difficulties are sometimes used to direct us into a place where God actually meets us there. And some of the things that we avoid, some of the things that we hide or we run from, are the means of what God uses to lead us to Him. Things like disappointment, unrealized goals, unsatisfied dreams, unanswered prayers, failed aspirations. All those things are used to help us understand that this earthly journey is temporary. All this stuff is temporary. Our physical life on earth helps us understand that this is all temporary. See, Katie and I had a long-distance relationship when she lived in Europe and I was here. And so we dated for a year this way. But when we visited each other, man, I was so happy. I was so happy to see her. But at the same time, I was dreading the fact that I had to leave. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny how life is? You, you look forward to this moment, and at that very same moment that you're so happy, you're already thinking, I have to leave in three days. And that just happens all the time, and it's the same now. I am married to her, and it's till death do we part. But it's so temporary because we're going to die. And I'm already thinking about that. The day that I got married, I was thinking about that. Till death do we part. Oh man, that's coming, isn't it? I'm I'm, going to die. And the same thing is for our children. Our our time is so short with our kids. They're growing up so fast. And before we know it, they're, they're going to be out of our home and starting families of their own. So temporary are the things of this world. But I think God uses these types of temporary things to show us how temporary this world is. And the only thing of permanence is our relationship with God. That's the only thing. And since our relationship with God is everlasting, why do we spend so much of our resources on the temporary? I mean, isn't that foolish? Isn't that a foolish thing to do? If we live with an eternal perspective, knowing that the things of this world, like disappointments, death, sickness, disability, all those other things that can get us down, we understand that all of those things are real. I'm not downplaying that stuff. We realize that all those things are painful and that they hurt, but we also know that they're temporary. We know that those things are temporary. Everyone here, since the day you were born, you're marching towards death. That clock was set. The day you were born, the time is ticking that you're going to die. Don't mean to be that morbid, but I'm just laying out the facts here. That everything material around you is dying as well. Nothing is forever. And it's time to invest into the eternal things. To share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. That is eternal. To make disciples of all nations. That is eternal. 
to love God and invest our life into relationship with Him, those aren't things you do after you're dead. Those are things that you do right now and you invest into right now and you use your resources right now as Luke chapter 16 is telling us to build relationships for the eternal. And I think many churches live in the now and are concerned with their own agendas rather than having a kingdom agenda. Are we really living with eternity in mind? Are we personally, are we as a church community, using our resources to bless others for eternal dwellings? See, the shrewd master did what he did so he could have friends now. And and Jesus is telling us to use that similar shrewdness in that when, when everything is gone, people still find their way into eternal dwellings. Because we've invested that into them. We've invested our temporary things so that they can have an eternal dwelling. All the actions of a Christian are to be eternity-minded. Verses 10 through 12. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, temporary wealth, stuff, Who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give that which is your own? You know that saying, don't sweat the small stuff? I'm not so sure that that's biblical. The manager was commended for his shrewdness, not his dishonesty. Remember that? And what we do with the small things are indicative of what we do with the big things. Aren't they? Faithfulness and dishonesty, those aren't quantifiable things. You are either faithful or you are not. You are either dishonest or you are not. It doesn't matter how big or how small the thing is. That's just your character. And lying starts out small, doesn't it? Remember I told you that kids are born sinners? You can tell by the lying. Because it starts at around two years old. And I actually think that it starts sooner, but they just don't have the words to actually lie to you, but their little evil heads. It's going on in there. It's going on. The lying's already happening in there. They just don't have the vocabulary to say like, no, I didn't take that candy and have it in their mouth. But it starts out small and then it grows to something bigger. Dishonesty is dishonesty. It doesn't matter if it's a, a, a penny or if it's a hundred bucks or a hundred thousand bucks. It's still dishonest. If you worked for your money, you worked for it. You didn't inherit it because we talked about that lottery mentality too. But you worked hard for your money. You started with a little. You didn't get a handout or anything. You started. And if you start cheating your employer or the government when you don't make all that much, what do you think is going to happen when you make a lot? You think all of a sudden you're going to get honesty in your vocabulary and that you're suddenly going to be honest about your taxes when you have a lot? Faithfulness in very little is also faithfulness in much. If we can't be good stewards over a little, how are we going to be good stewards over much? You remember Judas Iscariot? Mary took a a pound of expensive ointment and anointed Jesus' feet. This is not Mary, Jesus' mom. This is Mary of Bethany. And what did he say in 
John chapter 12, verse 5. What did Judas say? Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And you would think like, yeah, that's true. I mean, it could have been used so much better for us. But then what did John record for us in the following verse in verse 6? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Matthew recorded for us in Matthew chapter 26 that Judas went to the chief priest and he asked, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. A chapter later, Judas saw that Jesus was condemned. He felt bad about it. He changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. And he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Mark wrote in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, it started out small because it's not like he, he just all of a sudden had that money. Something earlier on in his life, he, there was not a character change. There was not an eternity in mind. He was just kind of living in the present, living in the temporary. I can get this money right now and I can spend it for whatever and do this kind of stuff. And so he falls away like this. It's a character issue that isn't addressed. It's a perspective issue that isn't addressed. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can try. I tried. It doesn't work. It's just going to be erratic, and it's going to be confusing. And it's going to be random. And it's going to be apathetic. And when things are going for, for you well, money-wise, you kind of want to keep going that way because you want to make more. Or unless something bad happens. And then all of a sudden you're guilted into having a relationship with Jesus. And so you read your Bible for a, a while longer until you figure out, oh wow, I got a great stock pick. And then you put that down and then you start investing into this stuff again. And you start pouring in. And it's just confusing. You cannot unconditionally serve God and unconditionally serve money. You can't do it. If your master is money, then you're ruled and you're controlled by that. A slave to money. But if we recognize we're merely stewards of the things God has given to us, of that unrighteous wealth, just the stuff, and we use it for God's purposes, then we honor God and we use it to bless others, and and we can enjoy it ourselves in a way that we don't serve it, but it serves us. We use that to make eternal dwellings for people, to bring them from darkness into light. I don't know how stingy some people are, but I think a lot of people are, including the church. Because how many times does the church just kind of invest into itself? building projects or whatever, but it's for itself. How many times does a church just say, like, this is for out there. This is for the people in darkness so that we can move them into light. To serve the poor. To clothe the naked. To feed the hungry. To give water to the thirsty. To do these types of social justice things. And some people that's just kind of a... You have both perspectives, right? You have the social justice people that that's all that it is, but it's all that it is without the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, then it's just a temporary fix. 
It's not an eternal perspective. And then you have the people that are way over here that are saying, you know what, you don't have to worry about the social justice stuff. Just do the gospel. Just share the gospel. Just focus on the eternal. But how do you do that? How do you tell somebody who's hungry and dying that you need God and you're just eating and you're all like overweight and stuff and you're just eating stuff in your mouth and you're not giving the guy anything? That does not work. That is hypocrisy. James says that faith without works is dead. So we need to have eternity in mind to use our temporary unrighteous wealth to escort people from places of darkness into the light. To have an eternal perspective on those things, that the things that I'm investing into myself. What, what does that have in mind for the future? Is this just kind of a temporary thing where it's just kind of blown and that's it? Or, or am I having eternity in mind? So every decision that we make, where we spend our money, the relationships that we are investing in, the the decisions that we're making, business-wise, personally, all those types of things, this has to be done with an eternity perspective in mind. Otherwise, it's just a guilt thing. right? You, You don't have a passion about forever. If your passion just keeps to the same, the temporary. You just move from guilt and then working your way out of it, having some behavior modification until that guilt is subsided and then you go back again. Our perspectives have to change. The way that we view God has to change. And those things have to become passions for us. Real. And if they are not, explore them. Talk about them. Pray about them. Reason with yourself. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your patience with us. I pray, Lord, that the lives that are in this church would be transformed, not because we have guilted them into being that, God, but because they become passionate followers of Yours. Lord, we ask for Your help in having eternity in mind. In everything we do at this church and how we serve our church and the community and the world. Help us, Lord, to not think of things in a temporary way, but invest our unrighteous wealth into eternal dwellings. In Jesus' name, amen.